Welcome everyone to Classics, Kane Academy's podcast on classic works of literature, art, film, and music. I'm Andrew Zorneman, your host. In this episode, I sit down with Dr. Matthew Post, Director of the Graduate Program in Humanities with Classical Education Concentration at the University of Dallas. Matthew and I had a chance to talk about the wonderful master's program Dallas offers for humanities teachers. We also had a swell time talking about some of our favorite classics, Sophocles' Oedipus Rex, Thucydides' History of the Peloponnesian War, and Plato's Republic. We also talked about some practical things, some really good strategies for teaching students, and the best ways to balance teaching in person with teaching online. I hope you enjoy this podcast recorded on the campus of the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Well, good afternoon, Matthew Post. Uh, great to see you here at the University of Dallas. Well, thank you very much. It's great to have you here. So you're the Graduate Director of Humanities with Classical Education Concentration here at Dallas. Tell me about the program and uh, what it entails. Okay, so the program, of course, exists within the University of Dallas, and the University of Dallas itself was founded with a deep commitment to liberal arts, great books, education that aims at virtue and respects faith. And, you know, we've been doing this for over 50 years. But increasingly over time, of course, we noticed that there was a certain kind of education that was common in America, and it was certainly common at least up until the 50s, or at least it was still there in the 50s, and we started to see it disappear. Um, but it's coming back now, and there's a renewal. And, of course, uh, as I'm sure your listeners know, we call this classical education. And we noticed at the university that people were graduating from here, teaching in classical schools, people from classical schools were coming here. And some, what, what a lot of them are looking for is... First of all, just to kind of engage more deeply with the things that they love. Um, some of them are looking for guidance on how, for example, to guide a Socratic seminar. Some of them are looking for guidance on basic things like classroom assessment, uh, how to manage a classroom in a way that honors our mission, um, is oriented toward virtue, treats uh, their students in accordance with their dignity as human people and in accordance with justice. And we started to realize that we might have a lot to offer here, and we're really focused on any way that our program can serve these teachers. Um, one thing I'll add, though, is at the same time, these teachers are doing fantastic work, and it's collaborative. They sometimes tell us things that we don't know, that we can bring into our program and integrate, and then possibly offer that to other teachers. Mm-hmm. Great. What's, can you give me an example of something that that you and your colleagues have learned from one of your students? Some of our classes, we might be teaching Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics. And someone will say, well, look, I'm a teacher who teaches K through uh, 4. Um, what do I need Aristotle for? I'm not, I'm not going to be teaching Aristotle to these kids. Um, now, we had a teacher who was teaching K through 4, and he, uh, and he read Aristotle, and he said, this has transformed my classroom teaching because Aristotle has helped me to better understand what virtue is. Um, how you aim at it, uh, and also the importance of childhood development, because Aristotle actually talks about that. So even though that's something that I might have said before, it wasn't until this teacher explained to me exactly what they were doing in the classroom that I really properly understood you know, the relevance of something like Aristotle to classroom education. Very interesting. So let me turn it around now. Uh, somebody wants to come to your program. What's the Dallas difference? What are they going to get at Dallas that is really the, the, the holdout signature experience that, that you've set the program up for? 
Yeah, thanks for asking that. So um, I would compare Dallas to two kinds of programs. One, I would say, is the Great Books program, uh, and often very focused on a seminar style. And those programs are fantastic. Um, and then there's also uh, another kind of program, which might be a... Uh, kind of choose what you're interested in program. And they have great knowledge of literature and philosophy and history. Um, but you kind of come in and you make your own curriculum. Now, I think that what Dallas offers in contrast to these two things is, in contrast to just pure great books, we do have great books and we do have seminars. But we also focus on the liberal arts. What does it mean to call something an art? What does it mean to learn it, to teach it, to practice it? And, of course, these arts are going to be the trivium and the quadrivium. And it's important to reflect on how do those arts cohere with each other, but also how do they relate with um, specialization in the disciplines? How do they relate to the sciences? Which is also another way of saying, how do I relate a focus on truth, beauty, and goodness to a world in which I also have to make a buck? Right. Um, so that's one thing which is very important. So it's not just about great books here. Um, and in terms of the other one, where you actually have great courses taught by great professors, but you're kind of choosing your own thing, here there is a little bit of that. But how I would characterize it is, is it's about tailoring it to the teacher or the administrator, the school administrator that's going into the program. So there are options and there is flexibility, but at the same time, if you're going to be teaching in a program or leading or crafting a program who, in one part of its mission is the coherence of disciplines, the integration of everything, looking at the human being as a whole and aiming at virtue, it's going to be very important that there actually be some structure to your program mm -hmm. and that you may have to study things that if left to yourself, you wouldn't choose those things. But by talking to them and advising, uh, we come to... Uh, to a conclusion in which, you know, this is a structured program that's going to have uh, what we hope to be the maximum benefit for the person going through the program. Mm -hmm. Now, this language of teaching to virtue is uh, pretty various, say, yeah. within the classical education movement. And, you know, some practitioners will say the reason you read a particular text, say, of imaginative literature, uh, Hamlet or Lion, the Witch, and the Word, Wardrobe or Pride and Prejudice, is that you want the students to walk away with, um, you know, a takeaway virtue. Right. And that's the real reason why we read the literature. Right. And then there are other very serious advocates of great books, of classical education, who would say, yeah, that's bordering on or actually is over the border of moralizing. Yes. Like, you know, would... Uh, so where do you stand on that? What is your program uh, practice in terms of the relationship between the study of, say, great imaginative literature and the development of virtue? Right, right. Thank you. Yeah, so that's an excellent question. Um, so as you might guess from what I said before, we think that all of these things are important, right? So if you want to talk about truth, beauty, and goodness, one thing I would say is that any piece of literature um, it may be presented on some level to entertain, but on another level, it's conveying truths about human beings, about the human condition, about the world in which we live. On the other hand, it's also a work of art, and it's beautiful, and the, be the beauty of it and the literary dimension of it is very important, and appreciating it is important. Um, and then thinking about goodness, and that gets to, the, I think, the question of moralizing. Um, if it is trying to convey truths about human beings and about the human condition, there are going to be moral issues at stake. Um, and we want to make sure that in anything that we look at, all of these things are covered. But one thing I would say about the, the specific concern of moralizing 
is that our approach to this isn't dictatorial. So we're not going to say, yeah, this is the virtue that it's trying to convey. And if the student who hears it doesn't become virtuous in this way, there's been a failure. Mm -hmm. Um, And one reason why we don't say this is because, first of all, human beings have free will. And one has to respect that, which means that you present them with options. You present them with arguments and situations, and you do your best to lead them through this so that you've created conditions that are more conducive to them living virtuous lives rather than vicious lives. And that's also a view with their appreciation of beauty and with their general happiness. But ultimately, it's complicated. Uh, And actually trying and striving to be virtuous is complicated. It's difficult to understand what virtue is. And even if you think you understand, it's difficult to understand how it applies in a specific case. And we don't do anyone in our program any favors by glossing over that difficulty and that complexity. Now, I think someone could come back and say, well, you're not going to give all that complexity to a child. That's fine. A teacher is going to have to understand that. But you need to understand the difficulties and the complexities before you can talk about how to adapt it for someone who's younger. Yeah. I'd say um, maybe one you know, practical implication for um, talking about virtue and reading imaginative literature lies in something like this. So you hear an overemphasis sometimes on uh, questions that have to do with should the character have done this or that, right? right? So you take a, a simple case... Uh, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Should Edmund have aban- you know, betrayed his family right. and uh, followed the witch? Yeah. And uh, as if he is something like a case study in, in the study of ethics. Right. 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 And, uh, you know, the, the obvious answer is no, he shouldn't have betrayed his family, right? And followed right. the witch. Right. But it seems like the more interesting question is why did he do that? Right, right. That seems like the real pay dirt in terms of reading imaginative literature is we, we deepen our understanding of our humanity and our sympathy for the condition because we're, we're deep in the weeds of real characters who are doing real things. And uh, we're not standing in judgment on them, but we are very attuned to them because there's something profoundly human going on there. Does that sound right? Yeah, yeah. And and I'd say, too, I I can understand the hesitation with moralizing, especially because, you know, I I mean, at least I think this is true, that young people have a tendency, and adults as well, that if something is said to them in an intense authoritative way, there's a part of us that kind of wants to say, I'm going to push back on that. do you want to always be putting someone in the position in which they're going to be pushing back against the great truth or the great moral truth that you're presenting to them? Um, and what you said makes a lot of sense because if we are striving to be virtuous and being fallible people ourselves, it is important for us to understand the struggles that other people have faced and uh, why they made the decisions they did so that when we get there, it's not just a simple obey or do the right thing or not do the right thing, right? right. We'll be attentive to the fact that I'm torn by these things. I, you can self-diagnose and understand your emotions. But if I may, I'd like to give a another example here about moral teachings. Um, when I was going through school, and I think this is true for some other people, they'll read uh, Sophocles's uh, Oedipus Rex. And I sometimes put to teachers, what is the moral lesson of Sophocles' Oedipus Rex, right? So the guy is, uh, there's an oracle that says that he will kill his father and have children with his mother. And, you know, as I say, like, it would seem to be that the lesson is don't be born Oedipus. Great, we've all met the uh, the moral of that story. 
I think it actually matters if you approach a story in a profound way, in a way that's philosophically rigorous. Because I think if, going to your point, thinking about the character themselves, Oedipus is in a world in which he is afraid he's going to do something awful. And he strives to avoid doing those awful things, and in the end he ends up doing them anyway. And you look back and you really want to parse it out and say, could he have done differently? Because he really didn't know. I I think actually in a strange way it pushes the moral question even better. Because in the end he did do the wrong thing, and in a way he's responsible for his actions, and yet he couldn't have known better. So one of the things I try to emphasize to teachers is I think the true moral lesson of a work like that is that all of us are always on some level responsible and all of us on some level are on, are always afraid and have a sense of guilt. And yet there is always a degree of knowledge that we need that we don't have. So going to your point, let's try and look at them and try to sympathize with the character. I think that when you do that with someone like Oedipus, that really helps you to understand the moral situation that all people are in at all times. All right, so you, you shifted from moral truth, to the moral truth of the, of the play, to the moral situation. Yeah. Or an, an equivalent term or synonymous term would be the human condition, right? Right. So I'm more comfortable with the latter. I mm. think, you know, sort of, for one thing, uh, and I know you, don't, you didn't pose it because you accepted it. It's not possible for someone to choose not to be born who they are, right? right. So there, there's no moral lesson there. There's no human action involved, right? Right. None of the conditions there. But we do realize that we are born where we are to these <laughs> parents, to, to in this town, you know, in this time, and these set of circumstances. And, and, and the drama of life is largely a matter of how we respond to where we're born, where right. we're raised, where we live, where we work, where we lead, where we serve, et cetera. Right, and uh, so these these stories are illuminative in in that regard, certainly. Yeah, 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 yeah. Very, very good. Um, do you uh, you say that <clears throat> Dallas has a rich tradition? So some of the the program was born out of that rich tradition. Part of the program is born out of loosely what we call the great books. Uh, tradition. Any other uh, inspirations or models for the the, the uh, graduate program in humanities? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so if you look back to the kind of education you had, not just in in early America, of course, in which um, being able to read just that's so important, being able to read closely and to write well. Um, which is, by the way, as an aside, it's not just a question of adorning your writing. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a simple fact that human beings aren't just minds. Uh, we do exist in bodies and we do have passions. And it is important that work have a rhetorical dimension to it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just something we've understood for a very long time, although of late, sometimes it's shifted from rhetoric to propaganda. And one of the things I appreciate about the earlier tradition of reading and writing, which is also very important at the University of Dallas, is that there really is a difference between rhetoric and propaganda, especially if you understand um, how this was looked at in the medieval period and also in the ancient period. Um, And it's something to, to this effect, is propaganda is always looking to manipulate someone Uh, the implications that you're trying to exploit them um, or in the best case scenario that they're too stupid to understand their own interest and therefore you have to trick them into doing something. Whereas rhetoric um, in its truest sense 
is about the fact that if you give a really great argument, but you don't attend to the other parts of a human life, i.e. their passions and their situation, you're actually not giving them a good argument. Mm -hmm. So you have to be sensitive to, uh, going back to our earlier point, their situation. Where are they coming from? How do they feel at this point? What are their fears? What are their desires? And that's actually about aligning everything in the human being. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it leads to a deeper understanding of truth. But again, in a world in which you don't appreciate rhetoric, you can't approach it as an art that is lost. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's kind of a um, true rhetoric um, is is founded in some measure on a solidarity, yeah. right? You know, so we hold something in common. I, I recognize the suffering of my fellow, or, or as you would say, the, the the broad set of conditions that that, that person is in, the, the person I'm, I'm making a persuasive case to. And, um, and of course, part of this too is that we, as you say, we are people of passion, mm-hmm. right? So, um, you know, and the, the very notion of philosophy, right, is the love of wisdom, right? Yeah. And, uh, Augustine says that basically love is what makes us who we are, right? And so uh, we, we need to attend to this and uh, we're, we're dealing with the whole person and not, and we aren't trying to manipulate them in, in the true sense of rhetoric, right? It's not propaganda or, uh, Using the other person, uh, or you know, bludgeoning them with uh, with a rhetorical uh, you know, <laughs> hammer, right? Well, yeah, and you know, you think about a teacher who goes into the classroom, and it may very well be the case that they know more than those those kids, and they know more. Going back to the question of moralizing, they know more about that than those kids, and they could go in there and just say, you know what, I'm just going to tell them how it is. But then you have to think, how is the kid receiving that? You know, the teacher perceives themselves to just have integrity, to just be honest and straightforward. But from the student's perspective, it might appear to be overbearing, oppressive, demanding, authoritarian. And even if this person is talking about humility, while the student is being on the receiving end of something that feels authoritarian, what they're learning is, what they might be learning is, maybe one day I can be the person at the front of the classroom telling other people what to do. So you see that no matter how true the words literally are, the manner in which it's conveyed subverts that truth. Now, to be rhetorical, and I think really the difference between what you sometimes see in a kind of social science approach to, well, this is, I have to say it to kind of make them do this. But in rhetoric, I think it's actually a true sense of humility because, and this goes to your point about understanding the human situation, you really need to put yourself in their shoes and to try and see it from their perspective. One of the most compelling images um, about education from the tradition, of course, is the cave image in Plato's Republic, in which the philosopher is someone who exits the cave, knows the truth, and then you have the prisoners in the cave um, who, of course, don't know the truth. But what is education? The philosopher goes back down in the cave and stands with the prisoner, and then they help that prisoner exit the cave. So it means that the teacher never asks the student to take a journey that they haven't taken themselves, and they always meet them where they are. And that, that's the true understanding of rhetoric. Yeah. Of course, the uh, who we don't know who that person was in, in, in the cave. Yeah. Right. You know, and and uh, if memory serves correctly, he, he sort of drags that poor enslaved fellow out. So yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Not quite the gentle hand of the the teacher you're training in your graduate <laughs> program. I suspect. <laughs> well, I'd say this, and actually, I'm glad you brought that up because you know, in Plato's work, there are two accounts of an ascent and you know one is given in the in the symposium where it's this it sounds beautiful and gentle and wonderful and and the other is as you said um in the republic there's some dragging um but 
But I think that actually that's a really important point, especially when you think about K through 12 education. And this is something I talk about with teachers a lot is that sometimes maybe it is going to be hard, Yeah. you know, and maybe sometimes they're going to have to do things that aren't fun um, and are drudgery. And, uh, and sometimes that happens in a math class. I'm just putting it out there. And, you know, something that's okay, too. Um, people who want education to always be gentle and have not a whiff of harshness in it are probably doing that because they're thinking about times in which students were actually mistreated. And they have a good point. Uh, but we always want to be careful not to go too far. Um, again, thinking about Plato, he says education is a mixture of music, which he takes as the attractive and, and uh, the part that kind of draws you to beauty, and gymnastic, the part which you know entails discipline and a, a certain degree of harshness. Yeah, yeah. push-ups um, by the dozens, and uh, you know, yeah, <laughs> running hills and laps and uh, miles and so forth. Yeah, yes. tough work. So um, one of the, you know. I think you, you know, I, I bet you agree um, that one of the things that has really diminished in the American educational experience, the American culture at large, is uh, history. Mm-hmm. And uh, history is not always included uh, in a liberal uh, arts education in the sense of it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't seem to fit neatly into the trivium and quadrivium. Right. And uh, some practitioners would say it is not a liberal art. Hmm. But what, what does your program say? Where, where does history fit in, if at all? Right. So one thing I'll emphasize right off the bat is occasionally there are questions of what is a liberal art or what isn't or what is properly classical or what isn't. Um, our approach just to that kind of question is that, you know, we have some thoughts on it, mm-hmm. but... There are different ways of thinking about it, mm-hmm. and they they all have their merits. So we don't come down on just this is the one view and everything else is excluded. Uh, but with that caveat out of the way, I would say that uh, our approach of, toward it is that history is a liberal art. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you have two big fathers of history, um, Herodotus and Thucydides, um, I'm going to talk about Thucydides just for the sake of brevity and just keep myself to that. But, you know, Thucydides, in the first book of uh, his account of the Peloponnesian War, actually explains his purpose. And he says something to the effect of the things of the past being neighborly with the things that will be. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to help reveal what is clear about, literally in Greek, the human So you kind of look at that and you think, okay, what is history? History is supposed to be a record of the past just because it's good to know the past. Uh, No, of course not. Um, And then we say, well, we don't want to repeat things in the future. Okay, fine. So we want that. So there's something to be learned. But Thucydides takes you right there. It's about the human. It's about understanding the human. And then he goes on to say, I'm giving you a possession for all time. So the point of history is to give you a possession for all time by teaching you the character of human nature as such in all of the different circumstances that it finds itself in. And the way in which that is a liberal art, of course, is that if a liberal art is an art that's going to liberate you, literally as it's implied, is that if you don't understand what human nature is and if you don't understand how it responds to all these different circumstances, when you find yourself in those circumstances... You might be so overwhelmed that you are just simply driven by whatever's happening. But by having this perspective through history, 
you encounter situations in your life that you're encountering for the first time, but rather than being driven by those circumstances, you have the capacity to take a step back and say, okay, wait a second, wait a second. What's going on with me internally and my emotions? What's going on out here? What do I know? What do I not know? And it starts to give you a real capacity to reflect on yourself. And again, I mean, liberate someone to have what I might say is general moral agency. But even more than that, I think actually even starts to prepare you for leadership. Because these are precisely the kinds of questions that someone that's going to be a leader, whether this means, you know, in their book club, in their church, uh, in their political community, that's what they need. Mm. That's that is a wonderful distillation of uh, something like the, the usefulness of a liberal arts education. Of mm. course, you know, sometimes we say that education is an end unto itself. And, right. and the, the good of it lies in that the person is now free. Right, right. But it's also the fact we have to we have to pay our way, work our way through world and through right. the world, and that means we have to engage it. We have to understand it. As you say, you have to be a leader. You have to you have to teach. You have to mediate between contending parties. If you're a lawyer, you have to you have to build your business. If you're a business person, you have to you have to be a father. You have to be a mother. Yeah. You have to engage as a citizen, right? So there there are a thousand different things that each person is called to do. Right. And uh, the way you described it is that um, the study of history, at least at the feet of Thucydides, is, has a, a usefulness to it. It's a, You can turn around and you, you know the world better because you know humans better. Right. And you can do your job, whatever it is, better yeah. because of that. Yeah, yeah no, that's right. And, and, and to be fair, Thucydides also emphasizes uh, in various ways the utility of what he's doing. But if you're kind of, because uh, you also talked about education for its own sake and uh if I may, a little anecdote, you know, I, I uh, had this student, university student, and uh, and we were talking, and I, I would meet with him every week, and we'd talk about all sorts of stuff that really wasn't to do with a particular class. Yeah. And one day, he said to me, he said, so heaven is, you're just, you're just there forever. And I'm like, presumably? He said, don't you think it would get boring? And I said, well, do you notice how we sit down every week and just talk about the same things every week? You ever get bored of it? And he kind of laughed, and he said... Touche, right? Yeah. And the thing is, what are we talking about? We're talking about people we know. We're talking about great works of art. Um, we're talking about political situations. So there's a variety of things we're talking about. But ultimately, if you wanted to summarize it, you could say we're talking about the human and the cosmos. And the funny thing is, is that that's also um, something that Thucydides is presenting to you. And even though one can understand it, in a utilitarian way, I don't even think that's what it is for Thucydides. I think the contemplation of these things is something which is enjoyable in itself. And although Thucydides is not known for his praise of contemplation, say, the way that Aristotle is, mm -hmm. nevertheless, no one sits down to write a history unless they take some pleasure in just thinking through what it is they're talking about. Mm -hmm. yeah, even in the way he crafts the book, it's, it's, yeah. it's clear that he's, he's just attended to to uh, literature, to literary style. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, it's clearly a, a source of pleasure for him. Yeah. Uh, some of your programs executed online, some of it, uh, or, you know, is distance learning, and uh, some of it is here on campus. Can you talk about the balance between the two? Is it ever the case that somebody ex is exclusively a distance learner in your yeah. program? Yeah, that's right. So, um, so uh, yeah, as you said, our program has a face-to-face -face component and a long-distance online component. Um, and obviously, people will say, can you honestly help with teacher formation through online? Um, 
face-to-face is the only way to go. Now, here at the university, we tend to agree there is something about face-to-face that cannot be reduplicated under any circumstance whatsoever. And there's a kind of community that you can have in face-to-face, which is fantastic. Um, But not everyone can do that, right? So we do our best to have as much face-to-face time as possible. And that would mean if someone's here, they could do the whole program face-to-face, or maybe they just do face-to-face in the summer and they do online in fall and spring while they're teaching. Um, And keeping in mind that they're in these online courses with the same people they met face-to-face in the summer. Mm -hmm. So there's still a sense of camaraderie there. But there are also people that do it only online. Mm -hmm. And honestly, the people that do that do that because they don't have the time or the money uh, to do things face-to-face. And while that might not be ideal to do everything online, um, if that is the only kind of education which is available to them, then I would rather they be able to give them as much as we can online rather than nothing. Mm-hmm. And something else I'll just briefly mention about online is that uh, it doesn't have to be that bad, mm-hmm. right? Uh, I think there's a lot to be said for approaching an online course and saying, you know something, this is a different kind of beast than the face-to-face course. Are there things that online is good at that face-to-face isn't? And the short answer is yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a face-to-face uh, talk, um, if you're having a seminar, let's just focus on that. Inevitably, there are people that are uh, more assertive or even aggressive than others. There are the people that don't talk. In an online message board, uh, participation is 100%. You virtually never get that in a face-to-face discussion. right? Um, also, in a face-to-face discussion, although it's very lively and dynamic and a lot of interesting ideas shake out, often people are speaking from uh, very uh, vague memories of things. And sometimes what they're saying just isn't all that well-grounded, and it can be misleading. In an online message board, people sit down, they open up the book, they look through it, they craft these very well-written, beautiful responses. So often the uh, discussions that you have are like a very sophisticated epistolary exchanges. Mm-hmm. In terms of lecture, um, and I do think lecture has its place, um, in a face-to-face lecture, people are tuning out, if I want to be generous, I'll say like every five minutes. Um, sometimes it would be more than that. So it's a good strategy to constantly be repeating Uh, to tell silly anecdotes just to give people downtime. Mm. In an online lecture, if you feel yourself tapping out, pause it. Mm. Uh, If you miss something, rewind it. If you didn't catch a word, look at the transcript. Mm -hmm. I would say that I could convey in 15 minutes of an online lecture something that would take me maybe two hours to convey in a face-to-face class. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, again, that's not saying that online is superior to -to face-to-face. It isn't, but it has its strengths. Mm -hmm. And those strengths are very well suited to people who, who, quite frankly, just don't have a lot of time. Mm So, so in your your strategic plan, did did you have in mind uh, millennials who are increasingly you know uh, disenchanted with you know typical school or college environments? Did you have in mind do-it-yourself learners, which are wildly on the rise, you know, in America? Yeah, we do have people like that in mind. Um, I want to be careful with it though, because as we all know. There's a certain kind of dependence on digital things, mm-hmm. and there's something destructive about that, right? And there's mm-hmm. studies showing increases in in uh, young people's anxiety, which, by the way, I, I don't need a study. I mean, digital things also increase my anxiety, so I know what that feels like. Um, so on the one hand, I do think there's a lot of potential for these things, and uh, we do want to serve people who are comfortable with them. On the other hand, though, 
I want to be careful about leveraging what's good in these platforms and also being clear about what can be destructive in them. And I'll give you one very quick example, and I hope you'll forgive me, uh, because it does actually concern podcasts. Okay. But, <laughs> yeah, but, but it's this, for, for one of my online courses, one of the students once said, I'd really love it. You know, your lectures have these great visuals, and um, but, you know, uh, I, I wish you'd just do them as podcasts. And I was very careful with this because my point was, well, no, podcasts have their place. Um, if you're going to sit down and be really focusing and really thinking through what's going in on a text that you have read closely, mm-hmm. I honestly don't want you to be doing that on the treadmill or when you're driving a car. Um, but if I was going to be speaking more casually, I would want to do it as a podcast. But if I'm doing something where I'm packing in as much information as I can into 10 minutes so that it's really short and succinct for a teacher who doesn't have a lot of time, I actually don't want to do it as a podcast. I want it to be something that they're going to sit down, you know. Um, so, yeah, so it's uh, so, you know, it's just kind of my way of saying that each thing has its place in the scheme of things. Right. That's great. Well, I am really so grateful that you've taken the big dive here and have now completed your first podcast and you've done it with Canyon Academy. And, uh, no, I, I, I agree that you got to strike a balance and uh, you got to make sure that what's good about more traditional modes of communication are, are preserved. And um, It seems like that's kind of the art of, of teaching is we're always looking for the, the best ways to preserve what's worked in the past and to, to keep things fresh and update where we have to. Yeah. But it looks like you got a great program here. Thanks for taking some time with me uh, to talk about it and to talk over some ideas and everything from Oedipus Rex to um, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and back again. So <laughs> great. Thanks again, uh, Matthew Post. Great to be with you today. You know, thank you uh, so much. Uh, I honestly think everything you guys are doing is fantastic. So anyway, thank you. Well, thanks. That's really encouraging. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of Classics. This podcast is a production of the Cana Academy Broadcast Network. Our producer was Helen DeSell Swernivan. We have other great episodes coming soon, so please join me again next time and bring your friends and family. I'm Andrew Swernivan. For everyone at Cana Academy, we look forward to meeting you again on Classics.